Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Kenneth Brown. Great to be here. Well, great to have you here. Now, Ken, you've been at this multifamily investing game for a little while. I think it'd be interesting that given that we're coming up on the start of 2024, uh, to talk a little bit about the outlook for 2024. But before we do, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Great. Well, thanks again for having me. Actually, I've been able to learn about multifamily, mostly from uh, a family office, SGI Fund One, and uh, they're, they're very, very aggressive in multifamily. And uh, we've had an exciting journey as a co-GP in their fund. I've just learned so much about the product there. Moving from there, my family, my partner's family, combined Lion Chase North America, our focus there includes, you know, operating our own assets, actually in technology as well. And we have a small fund advisory group where we act as a co-GP and seed emerging funds. Uh, We also look at opportunities for uh, LP positions. And uh, multifamily has been something that has really, really, um, just it's just been a compelling asset for the uh, several years we've been involved in uh, in this fund uh, management strategy. And I, I just think the most of what you guys have done, and, and I think that the most of the asset, it's very, very, very interesting asset. You've used the word fund a few times here, and certainly the fund model can be different from investing in discrete assets. Give us a little bit of the the thought process in in using a fund versus discrete investments. No, it's it's a great it's a great question. I think that the propensity of capital markets is really the single deal, the single deal, the single deal, the single deal. There's always a better deal, and deals are exciting. Deals are compelling. Deals are interesting. So the predominant thinking in, in capital markets is is a deal. Now moving from there, private equity creates thinking that, well, when we look at deals, do we look at the deals on their merit or do we look at the managers managers of the deals? So private equity firms and private equity brands pop up because they are better managers or perceived to be better managers or have the track record to prove that they're better managers of certain assets uh, than other groups of people. Now, private equity groups have been able to move that needle even more and have been able to establish themselves as not just folks that have great acumen when it comes to managing certain assets and and certain types of transactions, but they have said, hey, look, what we'd like to do is we would like to share the upside, the upside opportunity with with investors. I guess in the last 30, 40 years, private equity started from being a a real, real, real small club of niche, high asset manager, manager players to where it is now where you have multiple smaller fund opportunities, those fund managers that are specialized, that that have private equity experience, are able through different types of partnership models and different types of investment models, allow the everyday investor to take advantage of the upside. Now, moving into the fund diversification or differentiation first, the differentiation of the fund to the deal largely is that the manager is pooling capital to buy several assets at one time, manage several assets at one time, and obviously uh, turn around, develop, sell several assets at one time. The inherent advantage of the fund model 
is the hedge. And then moving from there, you have lots of other advantages because you're, 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 you have several assets in the fund at one time, whereas the deal tends to be less conforming. Each deal can be different. Each deal has different sets of risks. When you have a fund, make sure that your deals look the same or your deals feel the same. You also uh, enjoy immediate economies of scale. Whereas if you're dealing with a transaction that might or might not look like the other transaction, you don't necessarily get those advantages. And there's many, many other advantages to a fund. What I like most about a fund is the cachet. You bring in certain types of service providers. You bring in certain types of participants. It receives certain type of review in the due diligence community. Whereas deal by deal tends not, and I, I, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it tends not to bring as many of those folks to the table. So for starters, like I said, just, just in terms of differentiation of fund, versus the deal, they're different. From a differentiation standpoint, especially with multifamily, there's so many, many strategies. I think the manager has the capital access to go out and really, really take advantage of, of buying opportunities, particularly in this market cycle right now. You'll see funds, Victor, that are really able to take advantage of discounted properties much more so than the person or the organization that's doing a deal at a time, because frankly, the sellers, especially if they're distressed, want to see cash and cash presented. And those sellers gravitate to the folks that not only have the cash and can close faster, but bring an opportunity that has less risk in terms of a transaction. Whereas today, which is an anomaly, a lot of the banks, a lot of the providers are skittish and um, even though you may have a term sheet and everything looks good, within the three-month close cycle, uh, things can fall apart. So the fund, particularly today, has that compelling feature. That's a natural segue into talking about the current market conditions, where there is certainly a feeling that a lot of the projects that were underwritten and transacted in 2021, 2022, many of them with bridge debt are not going to be able to refinance into permanent financing in 24. And that's going to create some opportunities for investors either to come in and take a pref equity position or potentially even acquire distressed assets that simply are upside down because they can't make the numbers work at the current interest rates. What What's your perspective? Yeah. I mean, it depends on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at it as a seller, obviously you've got some opinions, right? I mean, and I think we talked the least about the seller, right? Most of these articles are pointed at opportunity to buy. But the seller has to make a decision that that's a bit prickly. I mean, the seller is looking at a situation where they're 100% aware. I mean, obviously, sellers are smart people. They're more than 100% aware that this interest rate cycle, you know, is putting them in a situation uh, much more so than their management. Okay, so... I would say there's ultimately some bad manager sellers out there, but ultimately most of these sellers realize that these interest rates have put them in a in a really tight spot. So I think the first decision, and I think the most interesting decision for the sellers is going to be how much cash should, should they raise at any cost to keep their assets. And I think that's an interest that's going to be an interesting question for some sellers because keep in mind. Across the annals of history, capital markets and, and, and successful people in capital markets are not necessarily defined by what they got. They're defined by what they keep. Cycles come and cycles go. I mean, the cause is irrelevant. So the best 
asset managers in adversity are tested. And obviously, uh, the, the ones that come through for their investors tend to do better in the next cycle. It's so easy with with hindsight. So, for example, if we were sitting here having this conversation in the middle of October, when the 10-year Treasury yield was, the yield curve had flattened and we were almost at parity with the Fed funds rate on the 10-year on the Treasury yield versus today, where Fed funds rate has not moved in, since the summer. It's still sitting at five, five and a quarter, five and a half. But now we have the 10-year Treasury yield back down, you know, almost in the threes. Uh, so we've seen a significant pullback in the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which, when it comes to permanent financing, ultimately lowers the cost of capital for permanent financing. So almost a very different conversation only six, eight weeks later compared to where we were in October. That's right. That's right. So like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who looks at the seller, the seller mentality, because ultimately all of us are faced with, with crisis and, 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 uh, and adverse circumstances, and we're defined by our ability to ride those out. Now you've got also some assets out there that are actually worth holding on to because they were they were uh, you know purchased at the right price. So perhaps there's enough equity in those deals to make these loans work. And of course, Victor, I guess there's the the idea in the back of everyone's head. Okay, if the interest rates lower enough, then I should be able to refinance with someone. So that's the menagerie there. Now on the buy side, I think the thing that we talk about the least is the fact that if I'm a smart seller, I'm not going to lower my price that much. And if I'm an advantage seller, I'm not going to lower my price that much. If I'm a disadvantaged seller and I have to sell just because there are opportunities out there, the buyers have to buy the right opportunities. But I think both parties benefit when these interest rates come down. And we've seen every evidence that these interest rates are probably going to start to come down this year. Yeah, that, that's pretty clear. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing as well, it's not just about the rate, it's also about the actual availability of capital. And we're definitely seeing credit conditions tighten, even in the face of falling interest rates. Even if we look, for example, at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, look at the reverse repo market. Back in the spring, there were $2.3 trillion in the reverse repo market. Today, it's you know under $700 billion more than a trillion, almost trillion and a half dollars have vanished from the system over that time period, almost 500 billion a month over the last couple of months. And that is significant. Where's that money gone? Those were theoretically excess bank reserves that have have vanished. That's going to have to translate into tightening credit conditions, irrespective of the interest rate. Really, really interesting year. 2023, I think the most interesting event, or at least amongst the most interesting events, in the history of capital markets, has been a uh, a digital bank run, right? I mean, you would that'd be something you see in a science fiction movie, probably, right? Or, you know, I don't know, some some uh, dramatic Netflix type of show. But the idea, Victor, that everybody would get on their app at the same time, whatever it is, and read a feed that says "pull your money out of a bank," right? And nobody has to get in line to do it, right? They just push a button and move money. It's cataclysmic. And like I said, I mean, it's it's almost out of a, uh, you know, it's out of a Netflix movie, right? So that technically could happen to anybody. Heck, it could happen to Bank of America if the messaging and if the and if the uh, if the thinking was persuasive enough. People could just hit a button and move a trillion dollars out of Bank of America. I would wonder, Victor, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I would wonder. You can't do that in the stock market. I would wonder if there's stock limits, yeah. 
Is is that true? Is that is that the fact? Is I mean, can are there no stop limits? So the the Fed or no other agency can step in and say, wait a minute, you can't get your money out today. I mean, well, I think that- there's probably some measure of that, but by I think by the time they hit those thresholds, the damage is done. Right, right. Because if I can't get all my money out on Monday, I definitely want it out by Friday. So uh, you're, right, you're right. So that's a good point. So you have this event that is digital. I mean, that's real time. And the second aspect of the event that we talk about the least, in my opinion, is the scissor impact of this thing, right? Or the scissor descriptive aspects of it, right? Because as you mentioned, we've typically looked at banks and valued banks based on their ability to collect money they loan out. So any bank that's dealing with foreclosures and repossessions and and other really terrible things tends to be less profitable and obviously tends to be more risky. Here's a situation where people said, like, like like you alluded to, I'm evaluating this bank not necessarily on foreclosures. I'm evaluating this bank based on its cash balances. And looking at its cash balances, it may, in fact, be unable to address some investments that it's made. But even there, look, I mean, look at Silicon Valley Bank. Look how much cash they had on their balance sheet. If you would look at that, you would say this is a strong bank. And then when you look at the position of securities that are in the held to maturity category, there again, you're not looking at the mark to market loss associated with those because they're in that held to maturity category. So again, the balance sheet appears strong, but it it's uh, it still can be a house of cards. Hey, look, you know, one of my favorite books uh, is Black Swan. Uh, yeah, Nicholas Taleb. That's right. And, and, he, and, and what does he talk about throughout that book? That when 99% of people are looking one way, that is the greatest opportunity for an event like this to happen. I mean, because to your point, there, there really wasn't any circumstances that necessarily said that Silicon Valley Bank was going out of business. It was just this perception that it could happen. And the perception that it could happen led to the event. But what I'm also talking about is something different. See, typically banks were were valued and their stock price moved. Typically now, I'm not saying, you know, it was every time, but typically bank stocks and, and bank investment was looking strictly at what? At their profitability. Now, the stock price is moving because of cash balances. That's a very different situation because you have this, um, you know, I, I call it the curly spin, but I mean, I'm dating myself. Some of your listeners don't wa- didn't watch the Three Stooges, but if you remember the uh, the actor uh, Curly get on the floor and 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 spin around in a circle, you know, with his feet. You know, it was it's pretty amazing uh, athletic feat, actually. But the point is. If you are not making loans, you're not making money. So your deposits stay high. But who the heck's going to invest in a bank that's not making money? They're kind of torn in that situation. If they don't have enough money to make the loans, then they're not going to make loans. And now, more than ever, they've had to cut lending because of the environment, because of the risk uh, situation, which means that inherently they're asphyxiating themselves but they've made this decision to, I guess, uh, economically fast. So they they just can't take any and every deal that's good. I mean, that's excellent anymore. I mean, I, I've met with people that had great relationships with banks 
A, credit, et cetera, et cetera. And banks have told them very politely they're not lending for several months. So this is a different situation. I think it, it has long-term ramifications. So I think that's probably one of the biggest events of 2023. And I think that that event is going to uh, is going to show up again and again. That's the new reality you know, we're in, that people in real time are looking at bank balances. So as you look forward to 2024, how is this influencing your strategy, your tactics? What are you doing differently? One of my favorite quotes is uh, by uh, J.P. Morgan. He said, uh, in the best of times and the worst of times, people will be rich and people will be poor. I think that moving into 2024, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to buy, a lot of great opportunities for your investors to pick up uh, great multifamily properties at a new basis, right? So I think that's more than probable. But we're also going to see the medal of investors and, and, and managers of assets that are going to have to go to the secondary market, private credit, to, uh, to get the capital they need to keep these assets. And I think those investors are going to be worth investing in too because they have great assets. Uh, they bought those assets right. They're going to take a hit in terms of, you know, in terms of their profitability. But I'd imagine that because they are in need of cash, their equity offers are going to be very, very aggressive. And I think you're going to want to get into some of these deals to keep some of these properties and keep some of these sellers whole. So I think you have opportunity on both sides. I think that a basis reset is not necessarily cataclysmic. And I think some people would disagree with me on that, but I don't think it's cataclysmic because incomes are strong. Employment is strong. That means people can pay their rent. As long as people can pay their rent, asset values, you know, inherently either stabilize or, or, con- or continue their trajectory. But a basis reset is great for a buyer, uh, not so great for uh, not so great for owners. But a basis reset also means that an owner with steady income will have an opportunity to, to ride it out as long as they can uh, find a, a, a new credit partner and as long as they can make the payments. Technically, Victor, they should get 100% of their equity back after all this is over, right? So they'll have to use that equity for unfortunate purposes, but that's what equity is for, in my opinion, right? It can't always be, you know, it can't always be something that just sits on the balance sheet. Sometimes it has to be activated. Sometimes it has to be leveraged. So folks with equity are going to have to use it to get that cash in to ride out the site. Absolutely. Well, Ken, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Oh, great. I mean, I, you know, I'm at uh, Lion Chase North America and, uh, you know, uh, my email address is kb at lionchase.com. Our, our mobile number's there, our office number's there. They can connect through you, of course, as well. I, I think you got a great group. Frankly, I think uh, the Canada market is is very, very interesting as well. And um, I think, uh, you know, what you guys have been able to do is very, very interesting. So that's it. If, um, you know, if folks want to reach out to me, they sure they can reach out to me through you or, or, or again, get in touch with us direct. Fantastic. Well, uh, Ken, great conversation. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Ken Brown at Lion Chase Holdings. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.